Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament podcast for all of you who are trying to get a handle on the Old Testament. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Our text this week is Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, the first reading for March 7th, 2021. You might recognize this passage as the Exodus version of the Ten Commandments. And to help us make our way through this text, we have a special guest this week. We sure do. Our guest scholar this week is Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in the frozen plains of Alberta, Canada. <laughs> she has kept warm by staying very busy lately, in part thanks to the great success of her recent book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, which is an accessible and engaging formulation of her dissertation research for regular people like me and you. I don't know about me. You're not very, I don't know about Rachel. You're not very regular, Tim. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For regular and irregular people. <laughs> Seriously, all of you out there need to get this book on your shelf. Carmen blogs and now also vlogs and has been doing some really cool partnerships with Tim Mackey and the folks over at the BibleProject.com. And we'll give you links to all of her great stuff on our website. I met Carmen a number of years back when we partnered on another Exodus-related project, her book, Illustrated Exodus in Hebrew, which is part of the Glossa House Illustrated Biblical Text series that I'm involved with. As you're about to find out, Carmen is a super sharp scholar with some real breakthrough insights about the Ten Commandments. It's a thrill to have you with us on the podcast, Carmen. Welcome to First Reading. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it, it's very nice to have you with us, um, especially because I've just learned that you live in the frozen north. Um the frozen very north with like <laughs> highs in the negative numbers. Um, yes. But as that's not your, your home territory, how have you adapted to the winters? I've learned that there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. Uh, <laughs> this week is stretching that proverb a little bit. We've got a high of negative 26 Celsius today and oh. we have for the past five days in a row. So oh and goodness. lows of like negative 41, negative 43. So it's very cold. <laughs> but it's beautiful. We have lots of sunshine and I love seeing the snow on the trees. Excellent. Well, Carmen, we'd love to have you read the passage for us if you wouldn't mind. I believe you're reading out of the NIV translation. I am. Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is a passage that a lot of people probably know or have heard, but not everybody knows kind of where this drops in the Bible. Yes, yes. Can we say a little bit about the literary context of where we find this block of text in the flow of what's happening in Exodus? Yeah, that's one of the most startling insights we get from reading it in context. If we if we actually look at Exodus chapter 20 and pay attention to where it's showing up in the story, that's probably our biggest preaching takeaway. And that mm. is God has already rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He has already demonstrated who he is. He's brought them through the wilderness. Chapter 19 tells us that he reveals himself to the people in this grand theophany. There's uh, lightning and thunder and clouds of smoke. And he speaks to the people and tells them that they're a, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, his treasured possession. So all of that comes before the Ten Commandments. So that's super important because we often have a default of thinking about the Ten Commandments as a means of salvation, as though the, the ancient Israelites had to earn their way to God or earn God's favor and uh, boy, so glad we're not in that boat. We have grace through Jesus. But that's an, actually a misdiagnosis of what the Ten Commandments are. They've already been delivered by the grace of God. And now he's brought them to Sinai so that he can remake them as a people, as his covenant people, and commission them into his service. And the Ten Commandments are the first step in that commissioning, in showing them how to live now that they've been redeemed. That's really great. I, it's almost like you could you could say the Ten Commandments are the so what now kind of or what next you yes. know what's what does this look like now that salvation has been enacted that liberation is here exactly exactly and for those who are more comfortable in the New Testament say in the letters of Paul almost every letter Paul writes falls neatly into two halves right the first half is the exposition and then the second half is the exhortation mm -hmm. so Paul says first here's what's true about you that God has saved you and what he's done and now so so what mm -hmm. here's what you're supposed to do here's how you're supposed to live in response and I think that's exactly what we have at Sinai or in Exodus as a whole the first half of the book the first 19 chapters is is demonstrating God's grace and telling them what's true true about them. And the rest of the book is saying, okay, now here's how to live as a result. That's a fascinating idea. That that just struck me the way you said that as a possible sermon point. God demonstrates what's mm. true about them and then shows them how to yes. live in light of the truth about themselves, which is that they are beloved yes. and chosen people. And I'm glad we read the whole passage because usually if you see the Ten Commandments on display in public, they're usually snipped out of their <laughs> context and they don't have verse 2 which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That is such a, right. an important uh, moment in which God is identifying himself as their savior and them as former slaves. This is not just a generic, hey, um, you know, a, like a universal moral code. Mm -hmm. This is just what God expects of everyone. 
these are his expectations for the covenant community that he has personally rescued. Exactly. And we've, I think we've talked about covenants here and there on our podcast, Mm -hmm. but it's worth reiterating that it's about a relationship, Mm -hmm. a real relationship between God and a people and Mm -hmm. not, not just sort of the abstract um, sort of moral fabric of the universe type of thing. This is about cultivating a relationship. That's right. Well, this is already, we're already in exciting territory with this, right? Like we've, we've reframed the Ten Commandments in a way that already is engaging just by setting it in its literary context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else we want to say about like sort of thinking homiletically here? Yeah. What we do with a text that is so familiar on the one hand, mm-hmm. but also kind of brushed off because it's, you know, legal schmeagle mm-hmm. stuff on the other, on the other side. I haven't tried this in a congregational setting, so I'm not necessarily commending it to you. Um, you you decide if it works in your context, but I wonder if it might help um, when preaching on this to just start by unsettling people um, and pointing out that the Ten Commandments are in fact unconstitutional. <laughs> I okay. I've done this I've done this carefully in adult Sunday school classes. Um, and, and the reason I do it is because I want people to see these are not universal moral prohibitions, but they're directed at the people of God. They um, constrain our worship to only the God of Israel, and they constrain our artistic expression of that worship. They constrain our our calendar by telling us not to work on the Sabbath. They, they make us honor our parents. So there, there are certain laws here that, of course, are laws in Canada and the United States also uh, preserve, like you shall not murder um, uh-huh. and you shall not steal. But there are others that are that are either beyond what a country can legislate or they apply only specifically to the people of faith. Mm. So that might be a way of shaking things up. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it startled me even when you said it. I had to think about it for mm-hmm. a second. I was like, Uncon- yeah, you could not legislate some of the things yeah. in here. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you legislate you shall not covet your neighbor's right. house? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is not like court uh, court law, but, you know, something that you mm-hmm. could take somebody to court for. It, it's one of the, re- that's one of the reasons I like to talk about the law as Torah with my students or, or you know, teaching, mm-hmm. teaching is, is not yep. quite as, you know, as robust maybe as I would like Authoritative it to be. Authoritative teaching yeah, maybe? Yeah. But I think, I think the idea of, of law just lends itself to this idea of rules that you follow, you check the box, but this idea of teaching when you're taught something and when you really internalize it, it changes you from the inside out. And that's really what God is yeah. up to here is changing people from the inside yes. out. And I think, you know, back to the homiletics question, we are in a really unique season globally with this mm-hmm. pandemic in that we have been, we have had all of our schedules disrupted, our institutions are disrupted, nothing is normal. And I am convinced that when God brought Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, he had them in this in his sweet spot in terms of remaking them as a people, because he stripped them of all of the roles and mm-hmm. uh, comforts and things that they, re- they knew how to rely on. And he's taken to the, them to this place of dislocation, mm-hmm. because that's where he can remake them and sort of rebuild from the ground up. And I think that's what we see happening at Sinai. So I would say the church is in a really unique and exciting season, as hard as it's been. Um, past, lots of pastors have told me how hard ministry is in this season. Um, but as hard as it is, it's also a golden opportunity to re-envision 
what our church ministry can look like post-COVID, like as we begin to, to wrestle with, okay, what is the bottom line? What does it take to be a church? And how can, mm-hmm. we, how can we reach people using new means uh, because the old means don't work? Yeah. And a passage like this gets at who, who are we at a root? Who yes. are we really? What does it mean to be the people of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that note, I'm I'm dying to talk with you about verse seven. Okay. I want to get to the name command, but I I I don't want to jump the gun okay. and jump right there. So let's work our way there a little bit. Okay. And uh, maybe we can talk about some of the early verses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what what jumps out at me is all of the all of the exclusivity that's here. Mm-hmm. All of the the like the ways that we were talking about how uh, the worship is constrained. Mm-hmm. And um, representation of God is constrained. And we have this this word, kana, that comes in here. God is a jealous God. Mm-hmm. What, do we, what do we do with that? How does that make sense in, in the context of all of these instructions? Yeah, in, in English, it's very confusing because aren't we not supposed to covet what our neighbor has? So then <laughs> how is it that God is jealous? Um, Dan Block explained this in class once uh, when I was his student, and I thought his illustration really helped. He explained it as the kind of jealousy that a husband would have for his wife if another man was making a pass towards her, trying to woo mm. her. There, there's, an, a, there's a fully appropriate kind of jealousy. If someone else is capturing her affections, he is going to like be mad and go after it because because they've made a lifetime commitment of loyalty to each other. And if someone else is encroaching on that, then yeah, he wants to beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what we see at Sinai, God saying, I want to be your God and, and I'm jealous for your worship and for your affections, not in a sense that God has a lack that we're filling, but in the sense that there's a there's been a commitment made. And so that's fully appropriate. Mm-hmm. Well, and and to keep kind of running with this theme of of it's not just a legal commitment. It's you. I I wonder if you could say it's a a commitment of of law and teaching, but also kind of a commitment of passion, almost where you know yes, God is. I yeah. will be passionate for you. Yeah, it's impassioned. Um, I've I've heard it translated as impassioned mm-hmm. God. Um, impassioned mm-hmm. in the sense that I am like I am so um, fired up about our relationship and about protecting our relationship. Mm-hmm. What we were just talking about spills over into the next verse or two about um, how both guilt and blessing pass down through generations. I wonder if mm-hmm. there's a tie into this idea of this being a covenant mm-hmm. that's not just about something that's happening in that one moment, but it yeah. is meant to persist through the generations. Yes. What do you think? I actually think that's why we have a command to honor the parents. You honor your father and your mother so that the faith they pass down to you will keep getting passed down. Um, I don't think it's honor your parents so that you personally will live to a ripe old age, but honor your parents, honor, honor the generation that gave you this faith so that you may collectively live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. In other words, you won't be exiled because you'll remain faithful. So yeah, I do think um, we, te- we tend to think of obedience to God as very personal, and religion is very personal and private. But the Israelites thought very communally about their faith. 
And so entering into relationship with God was also entering into this community of faith in which you had mutual commitment to each other. This is really interesting. I had never thought about this before, about if what how it changes the commandments is if you hear them as y'all instead of you. Y'all shall not yeah. kill. Yes. You know, and they are second masculine singular in the Hebrew, but they can, you they know, are. that can also be used to refer to Israel as a collective because Israel as a word is a second right. masculine singular. That could be another way to destabilize these in a sermon a little bit as well. How are we as a church, sure. you know, relating to the Ten Commandments? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you brought up the second person masculine singular, you know, this is to you uh, presuming a male property owning Israelite, like head of household. It's framed that way. I'll never forget. We had our kids in Awana for a little while and our oldest was memorizing the Ten Commandments. And she walks, she saunters into the room one day and she's like, yeah, like I was in danger of coveting my neighbor's wife. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, she was like 10 or something. And and that ox, boy, that sure does seem... Seem tempting. Um, and, and that was when it really became real to her that the, the scriptures are enculturated. Mm-hmm. And this, this is an ancient context. These are not universal moral prohibitions, again, um, but these are embedded in an ancient context. So I would say that the, although the commands are addressed to the male head of household, it has implications to all, for all Israelites, but the reason it's addressed to the male head of household is because he's the one in that culture with the power, and it's his power that needs to be reined in so that everyone in the community can flourish. So Dan Block calls the Ten Commandments the bill of other people's rights. Mm. <laughs> you know, we we think of protecting our own rights, but the Ten Commandments are actually protecting the rights of the vulnerable. So if you're a, a homeowner, then the male, male servant and female servant of in your household have to have a day off. It's your job to make sure they get a day off. Well, and and I think that's so helpful to put it in a in a power dynamic because the mm-hmm. the, the those who may have power has changed. What you do with your power matters and it matters mm-hmm. to God. I'm I'm dying to ask about the covetous one because that's it's such an odd could we jump there and then come back to the name sure. commandments sure. or do you want sure. to go to the name Okay. I just I've I've never understood and I'm, you know, a budding biblical scholar myself, why are there those two moments of you shall not covet your neighbor's house and then instead of just a laundry list of all the things that you're not supposed to covet, it restarts Mm -hmm. again. And I know there are theories about why that is, but what's your personal take on that? Okay, my personal take on it is that that is commandment 9 and 10. So we have covet twice reiterated in order to give us two commands there. And so I would indent it differently than NIV did it. So I'm somewhat unconventional in that I see the command against other gods and the command against making images as one command. Right. So everybody agrees that there's 10. <laughs> it's yes. just a matter of getting the <laughs> getting the verses to work out in such a way that it adds up to 10. It is surprisingly hard to count to 10 here. <laughs> um, and you can, there's lots of articles out there that talk about how to, how to do the counting. Um, yes, the Bible claims in several places that God gave Moses 10 words or 10, mm-hmm. 10 items on the list, but it's not entirely clear how to count them. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, well, Carmen, you've done so much on this passage of scripture on Sinai as a whole and Exodus as a whole, but you've really contributed a lot to our field even just in talking about the name command. I wonder if we could talk for a few minutes about um, how you understand that command, how it's a little different from what people might be used to, but how it helps yeah. open up the meaning of all of this and tie it together. Yeah, this is going to crack it open for people. This is really fun. <laughs> so Rachel's question was a really great setup because if we take verses three through six as command number one, then verse seven is command number two. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Um, and many people count it as the third command, but I would argue it's the second command so that so that these two at the top are programmatic for everything else that comes. They're like the heading. And you you can see in the prophets and in other places in the Old Testament um, where there's a covenant formula expressed, I will be your God and you will be my people. Mm -hmm. And I think that these two commands are reiterating the covenant formula. So first, I will be your God, so don't worship any other gods. And then verse 7 kind of riffs on the idea that you are my people. So in Hebrew, it says, you shall not bear or carry the name of the Lord your God. And so we have, I have in the NIV here, misuse. So you shall not bear or carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. They're, they're using misuse to, to capture bear in vain. Mm -hmm. um, the King James is you shall not take it in vain. Uh, there's a long tradition in English of thinking that that means to use God's name as a swear word or perhaps to take an oath and put God's name in it um, and then not keep your oath. So there, there's a long, very stubborn tradition of that. But as I investigated, I became more and more convinced that that's not at all what's going on here, but that the command is actually saying, you know, if, if we take a step back and look at the wider Sinai narrative, the command is saying, you are my people. I have claimed you as my own. I have put my name on you. Therefore, don't carry my name in vain. Oh. I, I've put my name on you to say that you belong to me. And most translators have come to this and say, well, we don't carry names. So that doesn't really make sense. Um, but in fact, they do carry names. So, so there's a couple of lines of evidence for that. First, in just a few chapters, Moses is going to come down the mountain with the instructions for how to make the high priestly garments for his brother Aaron. And Aaron is literally going to bear names or carry names using the same verb nasa mm -hmm. in Hebrew. Um, he has 12 gemstones on his chest and each one bears the name. It's, it's inscribed with one of the names of the 12 tribes. Because he represents them, they have a, a share in his ministry. And so he's coming in and out of the tabernacle representing the tribes by bearing their names. And it literally says, so, and so Aaron shall bear their names. He's, he has also gemstones on his shoulder. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Mm. And then, yeah, verse 29, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision. And then he has this other piece of equipment that helps him to do his job and that is on his forehead he has this gold medallion and it has two words in Hebrew on it kadosh la Yahweh and that's the the divine name so it's saying holy belonging to Yahweh whenever you have um, the the Hebrew letter lamed attached to any name it means belonging to or by or for so he is he's set apart as 
the specially authorized designated representative of God. And so he, on his person, is kind of traversing between two worlds. He's representing God to the people and the people to God, and he goes back and forth carrying these names. And it, I don't think it's a stretch for us to think of this as our visual model for what God means when he tells the Israelites not to bear his name in vain, because he's just called them in chapter 19, a kingdom yeah. of priests and nice. a holy nation. And then in Deuteronomy 26, among other passages, he reiterates that you are a people holy to the Lord your God, using the same two Hebrew words, applying that to the people as what it said on the high priest's forehead. And then the, to me, the kicker is Numbers chapter 6, which is where Moses prescribes the blessing that Aaron will pronounce over the people. And he says, uh, so this is number 623, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. We've often heard that in church services mm -hmm. as a benediction at the end of the service. Um, but what we, what we miss is verse 27. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. It's just wow. a very, it's like this verbal, it's a moment of verbal branding. In, <laughs> in fact, so, so we were told the blessing here, but we get the actual scene where it would have happened in Leviticus 8 and 9. The, the day, the very first day that the priests are in office, they go through the ordination ceremony. They're set apart for service. They're washed and dressed in these special garments. They do all the necessary sacrifices so that they can be like uh, their first day on the job. And the first thing Aaron does on, uh, on his first day on the job is come out and bless the people. As soon as he's authorized to do so, he confers the blessing. And then number six tells us what it is he's saying when he does the blessing, which is putting the name on them. So taking all that into consideration, when I come back to Exodus 20 and God says, you shall not carry or bear the name of the Lord your God in vain, I think, well, that's that's mm -hmm. clear. It's been put on them. They've been claimed as God's own, and now they're to represent him well. They have been commissioned at Sinai, just like Moses was commissioned at Sinai in the early part of Exodus. Mo I mean, there's this wonderful symmetry between Moses' childhood and the nation of Israel. Moses is under threat from Pharaoh. He's saved by, by passing through the water in the reeds, and he crosses the wilderness and he eventually, and he comes to Sinai and he sees God in a fiery theophany and God speaks to him and says, you're mine, go back to Egypt and set the people free. Wow. So then the people go through the same process. They're under threat of death from Pharaoh. They pass through the Sea of Reeds, which is what the Hebrew Bible always calls it, not the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. They cross the wilderness. They come to Sinai. They see a fiery theophany and God commissions them to be a kingdom of priests and his treasured possession. So, so the Ten Commandments is not just this like, hey, here's a to-do list going forward. This is their commissioning. They are supposed to be God's representatives among the nations. And so this is what it's supposed to look like in all these different areas of their life. And that's just so much more inspiring than the way we usually think about Old Testament law. I know. I oh, know. that's fantastic. I, re I remember reading this in your dissertation and just having the, the light bulbs going off. Because once you, oh. I, don't, I don't want to speak for everybody listening to the podcast, 
But I think once you look at it this way, through the evidence that you've collected, Carmen, it's like, well, of course mm. that's what this is about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It clicks. And, and it makes sense of so many things. There are so many passages that are even really familiar to us that make way more sense now that if, once you see this theme of bearing God's name as it runs through the whole canon. So, for example, Psalm 23, really, really a familiar psalm to most of us. He guides me along the right paths for, for his, his name's, name's sake. sake. Yeah, so he why, does. So why is my, yeah. my staying on the right path? Why does that have anything to do with God's name? Because I bear God's name. I am his holy representative. The way I live is a reflection on him. So if I go off the rails, if I go astray, other people will get the wrong impression about who he is. So he guides me on the right paths because his reputation is on the line. This is fantastic. Just on a personal note, I have never felt comfortable teaching the this commandment in confirmation because it just felt mm. like don't swear with God's right. name. That's I mean it just or even it the It feels so thing. little. Oh it, yeah. It feels so exactly. like well that's kind of picky. Yeah. And right. why does that come in the list before murder? And I and I could <laughs> Right. And I could I knew like yeah. what the name, what a name represents. It carries you know the power yeah. of the person yeah. and, and and um represents them. And but I had never put those pieces together and that's fantastic. And the other way that it's great, just even in the context of this conversation is what happens typically, not always, but typically when you get married or are adopted, your name you take changes. Name. Yes. You, yes. You bear the other person's name. You and do. What you do represents yourself as a family unit now. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if we could just get away from like speaking to pastors here, if we could get away from the idea of encouraging people to ask Jesus into their heart so that they could go to heaven when they die, which is such a truncated vision of salvation. And if we could reimagine yeah. it more biblically as inviting people to join the community of faith, to surrender to the God who rescued them, and then to, to take up this responsibility as his representatives among the nations. Like every mm. Christian is now part of the mission of God to, to declare his glory among the nations. And we miss that when we're thinking about our individual personal destiny. Not that yeah. our individual personal destiny isn't affected. It is. Um, but we, we, miss, we miss so much when we're only thinking about what happens after death and we're not thinking about, I'm a name bearer right now. Mm. Everything I do matters. Yeah. This is so fascinating. And we, sh we should angle in towards wrapping up pretty soon here. Do we have to? <laughs> I do want to ask, though, because we talked about this earlier, about the difference between the commandments being sort of universal moral code versus mm -hmm. something that's specific to a people and their God. Yeah. Um, how do we read this as Christians mm -hmm. without yep. erasing the particularity of this moment between God and the people of Israel in particular? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question. I wanted to go there too. Two things I want to say. First of all, when you read the early chapters of Deuteronomy, it's really fascinating to see how Moses addresses the people. Moses is addressing the next generation, not the ones who were at Sinai hearing all this, but their children. And yet consistently in the first several chapters, just read them and like circle every time he says you and see what he's saying about you. 
And it's like the guy's got amnesia. Like he's <laughs> forgotten that we've just passed through 40 years and all these people have died. He sees the mm. next generation as though they were at Sinai, mm -hmm. as though that is God's covenant with them too. Their parents were unfaithful. They get, in, in effect, grafted in. And so he sees the sense of immediacy. He says, you yourselves were, were rescued from Egypt, which is technically not true. <laughs> but theologically, it's true. And he wants to make sure that they grasp it as their story. So I think what we see in the New Testament is the New Testament authors, uh, the apostles doing the same kind of move as they think about now the church made up of Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus. So I'm thinking in particular of 1 Peter 2. Uh, 9 and 10. This is the passage I wrote my master's thesis on, which has just poured right into my dissertation and to this book project. So um, Peter is writing, I would say, to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus. And he says to them in, in chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special yeah. possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he goes on to say, how are you supposed to live now that this is true of you? But Peter has literally just taken the titles from Sinai and slapped them on these Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus, mm -hmm. which, I mean, if he was in one of our college classes, we would Ding him for plagiarism. majorly get him in trouble for <laughs> plagiarism. Like every word in those two verses comes from various Old Testament passages. It's a rich uh, tapestry of passages. Sure. I don't think... I do not see Peter as a supersessionist. I don't think he's replacing Israel with the church. I see that in Peter's vision, the Gentiles have been incorporated into that same covenant with Israel, that, that we now share in the same covenant and therefore we share in the commission. So he goes on to say, he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that he doesn't see them as pagans anymore because they've come to Christ. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Later, he'll talk about um, them bearing the name of Jesus. If you suffer for being a Christian, praise God that you bear that name. So he, he's tying together these threads and applying them to the church. So I think that we, we are right to see ourselves as the inheritors of the Sinai covenant and participants. Therefore, not just in the rescue but in the mission that God gives his people at Sinai to represent him. Well, uh, a couple of things that we like to do in our podcast, and we've been kind of batting these around the whole way through, but uh, maybe we could talk a little bit, uh, kind of collate these here. Uh, for mm -hmm. people who are listening, who are preachers and are trying to prepare a sermon on Exodus 20, what would be, I wonder what, this is for all of us, I wonder what would be the sort of top things that they would want to, steer clear of or be careful mm -hmm. of these preaching pitfalls that would take them yes. on a on a unproductive path. Yes, I would say the first and most unproductive path is to contrast law and grace. Mm -hmm. Amen. As though Amen. we have law in the Old Testament and we have grace in the New Testament. No, no, no. When we read Exodus, we see that the law is a gift. Yeah. The law itself is an expression of grace to people. And we have a hard time appreciating that because you know, we're maybe not big fans of laws. We feel like it cramp, they cramp our style. But um, if we're an ancient Near Eastern person 
we are absolutely beside ourselves thrilled that our deity is willing to tell us exactly what is expected of us instead of this like guess and check system. <laughs> Every time yeah. our crops fail or our children are dying, we don't know which God we've angered and what we've done to anger them. So we try all these different things to appease them. That's not how it is with the God of Israel. He demonstrates, um, ex- like he explains exactly what's expected. So there's there's grace there. The longest chapter in the Old Testament is Psalm 119, and it is this extended party celebrating <laughs> the Torah and the commands, not yes. just the Torah in a broad sense of instruction, like, oh, the stories are nice, but like the commands, the instructions, the st- statutes, yeah. the precepts. Mm-hmm. Um, the The psalmist is ex- is almost exhaustive in yeah. praising God for the law. So we need to reorient ourselves and see law as good news and see it it at itself in itself it's an expression of grace. Yeah. Which is what our which and is what going, our Jewish friends have been trying to tell us for forever. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Yeah, and I think the the flip side of that coin which is another preaching pitfall would be mm. instead of brushing off uh, the commands because they're they're law is the mm-hmm. sort of um, taking them on as a sort of legalistic code yeah, and just yes. grabbing onto them and sort of berating yeah. your congregation for you need to do this and this and this and this if you're going to yes. honor God. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So bo- in both ways, both of those extremes miss the whole point of the law, which yeah. is mission, right? So, right? so the call, when we preach the Ten Commandments, the call should be to participate in mission. Mm-hmm. How is the way that you have ordered your life demonstrating the character of God? How are you demonstrating the character of God and how you spend your money, how you drive, how you treat people, what you wear in your sexual relationships? Like like your every area of life is touched by the law and and therefore every area of our life should be under God's dominion mm-hmm. um, and should be honoring to him. So there's there's nothing that's just like off in the side like, oh, this part's mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I get to keep this little piece for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. We've talked about some ways that we might angle this into a sermon. Um, Rachel, I wonder, have you thought of, you know, having participated in this conversation here, what do you, what do you think? How would you shape this into a sermon or the start of one? Well, I have a a couple of angles that I think were really fruitful from our conversation today. Um, The sermon that I would want to give and the sermon that I would want to hear is on the name command and on Mm -hmm. just that different understanding of this that you you bear my name you represent me you are my people that's Mm -hmm. the name command that Mm -hmm. it's um you know your life has changed because um my my name hangs about your shoulders if you want to use Mm -hmm. that image of Aaron Mm -hmm. um and that's that's just such a beautiful image and such a way to preach this in a way that would be new for, I promise, everybody in your congregation. <laughs> Nobody's thought of this yet. Unless they heard me on some other podcast. Right. Unless they, yes, unless they've heard Dr. Imes already. Absolutely. I I love also the the larger literary context of this, which which emphasizes you are my treasured possession. That's the first mm-hmm. thing that God does. The first thing that God does isn't 
slapped out a bunch of rules that he wants them to follow. The first thing that God does is celebrate this relationship and and establish them in this identity of a beloved possession and a beloved people. How does their life change out of that new identity? I mean, I think you could take almost the whole Ten Commandments and say, how does your life change out of this new identity? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that would be a really great sermon as well. So those are the two angles that really Yeah, I think if if I were preaching this, I would want to really hammer in on on that identity piece of this and not mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. not in the abstract but really try to make it personal uh, and experiential for your congregation mm-hmm. I think people don't hear enough who they are in God's eyes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how beloved and treasured they are to God yes. and that's that's really yes. at the heart of this passage the white hot passion that God has for God's people yeah. And that's mm-hmm. you. I think it's empowering yeah. to think I'm not just sitting here waiting to die so that I can be with Jesus, but like yeah. I've been caught up into this, something much bigger than myself, and mm-hmm. I have a role to play in that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember when I was a teenager and getting a little further um, from the tether of my primary family unit, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I remember often as I was heading out the door with the car keys, my dad would say something like, Remember, Tim. You're a McNinch. <laughs> Remember, you're Perfect. a McNinch. And when you're That's... out there with those other people, you yeah. represent all of us in everything yeah. that you, yeah. you do. Just remember, yeah. you're a McNinch. That's great. That's a great illustration. And I, I think that's part of what's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. You bear God's name. Yeah. Remember mm-hmm. that as you're out in the world. I often use the illustration of a sports team wearing the jerseys of the school they represent. Yes. And mm-hmm. if, you know, if Prairie College had a team that went and played an away game, not that anyone's doing that these days, <laughs> but if, if we were, there was no pandemic. And if they started trash talking the ref and then they, they, you know, after the game, they beat up the other team. That's not just a personal failure. It reflects on the college. Mm -hmm. And so it's as though we're all wearing God's team jerseys and Mm -hmm. everybody's watching us. Like there's no way to take it off. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we didn't talk about this, but in the book of Revelation, John's vision makes this invisible tattoo or this invisible brand visible. He sees God's name written on people's foreheads or he sees the mark of the beast. Everybody's got an invisible tattoo. Either your allegiance is to God or to the system of this world. So you wear the mark of the beast. And yeah. and John, it's like everyone in John's vision comes under the black light and the, <laughs> yeah. and the stamp yeah. can, can be visible, right? <laughs> well, the, the only other thing that, that comes to mind for me in all of this is the way that these commandments are framed as a part of a relationship with God. Whenever you're in relationship with anybody, that changes who you are. It forms you and shapes you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's part of what's mm-hmm. happening in this list of laws, so to speak. By coming into relationship with this God, you get influenced by that. You start to, mm-hmm. to take on the character attributes of this God, mm-hmm. and that gets spelled out in these, in these words as well. Oh, this is one. This was just such a wonderful conversation. So rich in uh, a spiritual way, in a homiletical way, in so many ways. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yes, thanks so much. Well, friends, this is where we'll wrap up for the week. If you want to check out more of Carmen's resources, including her book, there are links to all that on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, where you'll also find all of our episodes 
and a little video celebrating our 100th episode, which we had just a little while ago. We're also on Facebook. Search for First Reading and you'll find us there where you can interact with us in the comments and all of that good stuff. We want to make sure to give credit to Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind the reading this week. And we want to thank all of you for listening. We look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Blessings as you carry the name. <laughs>